1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf, your host and the author of The Alternate Universe. This is the Who Needs Spies When We've Got Psychics edition. New Books and Science Fiction is part of the New Books Network, which is chock full of interviews with authors who write about all kinds of interesting stuff. But I guarantee you, this is the only show on the network where you're going to hear a conversation, like the one we're going to have today, that covers in one go, Astral Travel, the old-timey Mike Douglas talk show, Card Sharks, and the very real U.S. Army program that studied the potential military uses of psychic phenomenon. With me today is Daryl Gregory, the author of Spoonbenders, which was a Nebula Award finalist and an NPR Best Book for 2017. The paperback edition came out last week at the end of June. Daryl is the author of seven books and lots of stories. He won a World Fantasy Award and the Shirley Jackson Award for his novella, We Are All Completely Fine, in 2015. And his book, The Devil's Alphabet, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award in 2010. And that's just a sample of the recognition he's garnered. And he's with me now via the wonderful, magical electrons of Skype. Hi, (laughs) Daryl.
0: Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for joining me. So you and I live on the coast. You're on the West Coast and I'm in New York, but we both grew up in the Chicago area and I think probably around the same time. And I only mention that because your knowledge of Chicago is on full display in Spoonbenders, where the story is set. So I thought I'd ask a very Chicago-centric question to start our conversation. Is there something about Chicago that inspired your story about this family with psychic abilities or could the story have been set really anywhere?
0: No, it has to. It has to be Chicago. Yeah. So I grew up in Chicago. Um, I went to school in the 80s. I'm probably older than you, but I set the book in the 90s. Um, No, there's something about growing up in Chicago. And I think it relates to, I grew up in a Cubs family. Uh, so we were fans of the Cubs. And there's something about mediocrity in Chicago where, where growing up as a Cubs fan, like my father was such a huge fan he'd bring us out to Wrigley Field. Um, but they lost constantly. And so it taught you something about the universe that that you had to keep showing up for your job even if no one else came out to watch you. And you had to keep going back day after day And the best you you could hope for is to not be mathematically eliminated, you know, by August. Um, And there's something about that kind of Midwestern mindset about you keep your head down, you don't make too much of yourself. Um, I used to tell people that if you grew up in the Midwest and if you brag too much, you know, uh, God would send a tornado to destroy your house. That was the way that was that was the rule in my family It's like, keep your head down. Uh, Don't don't make too big a deal of anything. But the Telemachus family, I mean, they're a family dealing with mediocrity. I mean, they were famous for about 10 minutes um, before they were embarrassed on national television. And and that was the height of their fame. And so, um, you know, growing up as a kid, I I kept I had the same feeling that Maddie does in the book. So Maddie's this 14 year old in the book who's he wishes he had powers like his famous family did. Um, And. I grew up the same way thinking nothing interesting will ever happen to me. Everything interesting must have happened in the past because I'm growing up in the suburbs and there is nothing going on here.
1: For me, the most exciting thing was pretending I had magical powers like Samantha Stevens on Bewitched or, you know, Genie. (laughs) That was that was the most exciting thing I could I could manage. Let's talk about that moment of fame that you described, because I think that is a very pivotal moment for this family, and I think it'll tell our listeners a, a lot about the story, and it's a good place to dive in, I think. So So early in the book, Maddie Telemachus, the, the teenager who's a major character in the book, he gets to see this VHS of an old Mike Douglas show that featured his family long before he was born, as you say. So his mom, he sees his mom, and she's around 10 years old, and she's there with his uh, two uncles and his grandparents, and at that time they were known as Teddy Telemachus and his amazing family. So maybe could you describe for our listeners what made them so amazing, and then what happened during their appearance on the show that basically changed things forever for them?
0: Right. So, I mean, uh, I guess the the root of the family goes back to the 1960s. Teddy Telemachus is basically a con man and a card sharp who can fake his way through a psychic test. And he meets Maureen McKinnon, um, who has genuine power and is is a real clairvoyant. And uh, he thinks at first she's the greatest scam artist he's ever met, but she has actual power. And they fall in love, and uh, later they have kids. And Teddy's like, we have to go on the road with Zach because his kids start to have powers. Um, Irene can um, tell when somebody is telling the truth or not. Buddy can sense the future. And Frankie can move things with his mind as long as he's not too nervous. So, and he thinks they they go on the road as a traveling act and they make it onto the, the Mike Douglas show where, um, things start to go wrong and buddy who can see the future suddenly realizes that everything about he imagines going wrong with his family and his mother dying, everything is about to start happening. The dominoes are about to start to fall. He starts freaking out and, um, in order to save the day, Teddy Telemachus fakes some telekinetic activity that gets caught on camera, and they're embarrassed on national television. And that's the end of the act. It's, and it's kind of the end of the act, but uh, they could have kept going, but Maureen um, calls a halt to it. And we learned very early on in the in the book that Maureen dies of cancer soon after this, and that's the end of the amazing Telemachus
1: family as far as the performing group is. I'm always hesitant to talk to authors about, you know, well, what if you did it this way or what did you did it that way? But one thing that came to mind is that people possessed of the powers that this family genuinely has could also find their way into a book about superheroes and high class <laughs> bank robbers. But you, as you alluded to in the beginning, you know, setting it in Chicago, the heartland of I want to say of mediocrity, which I don't believe at all. You know, it's a wonderful city and I love Chicago. But as a setting, maybe messaging something about an averageness, you chose for their paths to take this less glamorous route where they're all basically just making ends meet. I mean, Irene, the human lie detector, works as a cashier at Aldi's and Buddy, who sees the future and could presumably make a fortune betting the horses or whatever, barely speaks and spends his days doing things that people think are really weird like digging holes in the yard. So so you chose a sad path for them to take. Yeah, um yeah,
0: I call that the angle of attack, you know. It's like every you you have an idea like let's say a family with psychic powers and then you try to figure out well, what's an interesting way to talk about this? And you're right. There's a there's a there's so many different ways you could go. You could write a superhero story um, you could write heist stories, and there's there's a kind of a heist that goes terribly wrong involving psychic powers in the book with Frankie and Buddy trying to rig a casino. Um, but I, I was struck by the fact that like that there are so many. Um, well, I was trying to figure out why if, if this is if the if people have these powers in the real world, um, why wouldn't they just become you know rulers of the world? Why wouldn't they become rich and famous? And I was struck by the the rationale that Yuri Geller always used, which is, you know, there's so many things that can reach out and interfere with your powers that only a faker can make his powers work all the time. And so his powers could cut out at any moment. And that was usually when he was being watched by another magician or someone paying too much attention. So I'm like, okay, so Yuri Geller's excuses for how these powers go wrong, that's going to be the metaphysics of my book. And so then I was trying to think of like what, um, what is it that's gone wrong? And Irene, her power to detect lies really gets in the way of holding down a decent job because she can hear everybody lying to her. Um, it, and it really gets in the way of romance because you can't even get to know anybody if every single polite thing they say, you know they're lying to you. <laughs> and they're, if they say, no, this isn't weird at all, and you know that they think it's absolutely weird, uh, it gets in the way of having a decent relationship. And so she finds love, on the nascent internet, on AOL, where in a chat room, she finds out nobody, she can't tell if anyone's lying and they can't tell if she's lying. And it lets her open up and find love.
1: So just like the rest of us, it brings her down to our level. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Where where all important relationships rely on a little bit of lying to get by, to make it nice for each other. Because we had those terrible days when you think, Okay, maybe this is not working, but let's let's just lie our way through this. And then then, you know, the love comes back.
1: Exactly. And you have a very artful way of presenting their skills, because early in the book, you know, it wasn't clear to me. Are they a fraud or not? Do they really do these things? And then over time you see in fact that they they do have these skills that they exercise in these very small ways. I mean Irene's father takes her around sometimes when he needs to know if someone's telling the truth or not, you know, and she's it's 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 such a small use for such a big potentially big talent.
0: Right. Well and I was interested in this idea of family mythologies. In that, like, if you take it from Maddie's point of view, he's 14. He thinks the circus has already left town. He's missed everything, and so all he's got are these stories about the, the the glory days of the family. And I was thinking, okay, that's my way into the story from Maddie's point of view. And you gradually realize, no, they they do have powers, and this is where where they've gone wrong for them.
1: Your book isn't an either or. When it comes to magical powers, I can almost imagine that some writers would have made a decision to say, I'm going to write a book where people have magical powers and they're real, or I'm going to write a book where people pretend to have magical powers and it's all fake, but you've created a family where the patriarch is a trickster, you know, does the kind of magic tricks you can learn from a book and with a lot of practice can really create an illusion. And then the the matriarch is a genuine psychic. So you found value in both or something interesting, at least in both approaches to creating magic.
0: Oh yeah. And there's a lot of discussion about magic in the book and, you know, and whether it really makes a difference. There's a, there's a kind of magic, there's a long con running throughout the book that Teddy pulls off that is as magical as anything the rest of his family can do. And I was interested in that. What Like, what is the difference between those two? And and the, the book itself is structured like a magic trick. When I teach writing students, I tell new writers that, you know, it, there'll come a time in your novel when you need to pull the rabbit out of the hat, and then you go back in the book and you put the rabbit in the hat at the right place so that when it appears, it's a magic trick. So the whole book is structured along those lines to do the same kind of things that Teddy does, uh, with his con games happen in the book. And, and you want, and even though you know the writer and, and and it's the same kind of a reader with a writer is making the same kind of contract as an audience with a magician, you know, the magician is trying to fool you. You want them to fool you. Part of the entertainment is the skill of which they fool you and you all decide to buy into that. And that's what I was really interested in. You know, I'm going to tell you a story you know, this is a mixture of lies and real things that happened with the government. But hopefully you're willing to go along.
1: Your book is also about belief, it seems like, because if someone believes something is true, it, it goes a long way towards making it true.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a major and I won't give it away, but there's a, a major plot point hinges on the belief in their own powers um, that comes along at the, at the climax of the book.
1: There's a subplot in the book based on the U.S. Army's Stargate project. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about the project and talk about the threat it poses to the harmony and well-being of the Telemachus family?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those things where my editor said, um, well, this is a little over the top. I'm like, no, all that is real. Um, (laughs) All the mob stuff that's happening in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, that stuff is real but the project Stargate was a, a government project and it moved among the CIA and the army and a couple of different different groups where they were investigating psychic abilities. And um, all, and the amazing thing is that all of these documents have been released online as of about a year and a half ago. So every single document, they were even testing Yuri Geller and testing other psychics. Um, you can page through the document of their very serious investigation into these powers. And so I was really intrigued by that. The, the idea that the government was buying into this. And if you had real psychics, um, why wouldn't that have completely changed the Cold War? And so I come up with some reasons for that to have happened or to have not happened, I guess, for for not be, these giant changes don't actually happen in the world for some what I hope are interesting reasons. But I was intrigued by this idea that the government would be throwing so much money at, um, at Project Stargate and Congress continued to fund it until 1995. We're throwing millions of dollars into this. And one reason the book is set in 1995 is because that's the last year of Project Stargate. And one of the characters is a, uh, a CIA agent who desperately wants to get the Telemachus family back into the program so he can revive the program and retire as a success, not as a failure as an agent. Um, So he's one of the threats that's looming around the edges of the family who wants to when they find out that Maddie's powers uh, have kicked in at age 14. He wants to draw him into being an agent, a psychic agent, just like his grandmother Marine was back in the 60s and 70s.
1: Right. And she, as far as they were concerned, played a very significant role in the Cold War, but it was all a secret.
0: Right, and I, you know, it's so much. There's so much research I had to, I wasn't able to use that. You just sort of have to leave by the side. But all the, um, all the research I did on the Russians' program, uh, the Russians had a psychic program as well. A bunch of research about the way subs communicated during the Cold War. All the stuff that my editor was like, I don't think you need all this. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. But maybe, maybe, maybe someday in another book I'll be able to use all this information.
1: If there were to be psychics, I can imagine that they would behave the way Maureen behaved and that she was able basically from after death, prepare her family and protect them using the skills of her family to send to send uh, warnings to them about what was to come.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, she's also using Buddy's power to see the future to sort of write them letters saying, please, um, here's how to stay out of trouble, because There's almost, you know, I didn't want to write write one of those books where, um, like in Firestarter or some of the other um, conspiracy books where the government has the secret program and it turns very dark and they're using these people against their will. I was not interested in writing uh, that kind of book, but I was very interested in writing a book in which a suburban mom basically subverts the entire government and keeps her family safe, even from beyond the grave. She was like, like super soccer mom.
1: As you said, you teach writing, and I wonder if after writing seven novels yourself, your lessons to your students have evolved. Do you do you know things now about writing, and I suppose yourself, that you didn't know when you were working on your first book, uh, Pandemonium, which came out in 2009?
0: Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there, there's so much. And the, the discouraging thing is that I have to keep relearning the same lessons that I'm teaching. So I went to, uh, I went to school at Illinois State University. Uh, I was an English and theater double major. And um, I found out that most of the lessons that I use about writing actually came from the theater program and from acting and directing. And the most important thing I learned was about figuring out what characters want in the moment, every single moment. And that's always the thing that that I have to keep coming back to. Whenever something's bogging down or it's boring me or it doesn't seem to be interesting other people, it's because I've forgotten whatever the emotional core is that the the characters want right then, what they're trying to get out of each other. And it's always more interesting when there's more than two people on stage at the same time. And I like the complicated family um, stories where everybody's sitting around the table, kind of bickering, trying to get something from the other characters whether it's love or attention or just get them to laugh, uh, that's the stuff that, you know, gets me going. And that's always the stuff I have to relearn uh, with every book.
1: Have your plots become more complicated over time? I mean, have you found that you've been able to master a more sophisticated type of writing? I'm not really sure. I suppose sophisticated could be defined in a lot of different ways. But what skills do you have have now that you think maybe you didn't have when you— started out? Oh, well,
0: well, definitely Spoonbenders is a case where I had to level up to this. I couldn't have done this when I started out. And, and that was having five point of view characters, having all of their plots overlap, having the patience to not start writing the book for months and months. I worked on this book six, seven months before I wrote a sentence that would actually be in the, um, in the book. Um, I wanted to know more about the characters. I wanted to work out how their, what their, what their stories were and how they were going to interact. Uh, and I don't think I would have had the patience for that and, and I wouldn't have had the skill to, um, find each of the characters voices. Like one of the hardest things to do in Spoonbenders was every time I started from a new character's point of view. Um, I, it was like starting a, a new novel with a new voice and I had to figure that out and figure out that character every time. And that was definitely a thing that I just threw myself into that I don't think I could have done with my first novel, which was written from basically one character's point of view. And my second book was one character's point of view and gradually got more complicated. We're all completely fine. The novella uh, that uh, won that World Fantasy Award you mentioned was an experiment in doing multiple points of view in a very tight space. And then once I got done with that book, I'm like, I think I could do this at a longer length And really spend more time with, um, especially with rotating point of view with a family, because families always hide things from each other. And I like this idea of hearing a story maybe a couple different times from different points of view and having the reader understand that there was a lot more going on than even each character understands. So that was fun.
1: And it's ironic, actually, you point out that families hide things from each other. And here was a family that would be particularly skilled at seeing through the veils that we put up for each other. And yet they, too, didn't have the full picture of what was going on. There were a lot of secrets that they were all hiding from each other successfully.
0: Right. Well, and, you know, Maddie, who's 14, his mom is Irene, the human lie detector. And, well, the entire family has learned that when you're around Irene— you just answer in the form of a question so she can't actually tell if you're lying or not. And she calls it, you know, don't quit trebecking me. Um, it's not Jeopardy. Um, so when uh, Irene suspects that Maddie's been smoking pot, she's like, I, um, are you, are you smoking pot? She asks him and he says, currently? Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, everybody's learning to try to hide things and um Uh, hide things from other members of the family, and only the reader gets all the information.
1: Well, even Buddy has to struggle with even his fortune-telling and seeing the future because he only gets pieces of it. And so there's all these gaps in between which leave him afraid of how he still doesn't really know how things are going to unfold. So, So in a way, all these things that someone might think of as a blessing, all these powers, bring with them curses as you say irene too can't have an intimate relationship because she knows exactly when her partner is is lying and it wears away at her
0: right and you know and and buddy is mute because he's afraid of saying something that's going to change the future in such a way that his family will fall to harm so he spends uh, his life sort of paralyzed knowing trying to figure out whether he's on script or not because he remembers the future like he remembers the past and so he's afraid that like if i deviate from from the future that i remember will i destroy everything so i've but he's but he's the maybe the saddest but one of my favorite characters to write about i think he's the heart of the family and he's the one most on guard trying to protect the family uh from the
1: future that he sees and you don't yourself believe in psychic phenomenon?
0: No, that's the, that's the ironic and sad thing. In in the acknowledgements at the end of the novel, I had to say, look, folks, I'm sorry. I don't actually believe any of this is real. Uh, this is fiction, and I have to apologize to the amazing Randy. Uh, there's a character in the book based on the amazing Randy, and he was a stage magician who spent the last part of his career um, debunking psychics and trying to get them to just submit to normal tests to prove that they had abilities. And he had a million dollar challenge to, for any psychic who would just prove that they had powers beyond what could be done with just fakery and nobody passed, um, in all the years he was running it. And so I have to apologize to, to, um, James Randy at the end of the acknowledgements. It's, it's fiction. I'm a skeptic, but I do like it in science fiction.
1: And is it hard to write sympathetically about characters who, in your fictional world, do, in fact, genuinely have these abilities?
0: You know what? I think that's that's the main job of fiction is empathy. I mean, that's the entire job, no matter what character you have, no matter how different they are from you. Your main job is to get in their shoes and see things from their point of view, even if they're doing terrible things. Frankie in this book is a terrible uncle who kind of uses his nephew to get out from underneath a mob debt. Um, but you, he does it out of love and f- for his own family and fear. Um, to, he just wants to hold things together. And so that's the whole job is empathy. And you keep coming back to how um, how are they going to get what they want? How would I try, if I were them, how would I do it? Um, and that's, the, that's really the... My favorite thing about writing is that even if things are really tumultuous in my own life, um, you've got this um, ability to spend hours a day in other people's shoes worrying you know doing their problems, which seem a lot easier on the page than my problems.
1: When you talk about empathy, that's something that of course applies to all kinds of fiction writing. Are there certain strategies or ways of thinking that apply? only to science fiction or fantasy writing or is that a false distinction
0: i think it's a false distinction i think there's almost no part of fiction writing um that's unique to a genre i think a lot of times genre is about sometimes it's about the furniture of like well if it has a dragon in it it's a fantasy if it has a spaceship it's science fiction But the human stuff has to always be the same. What I will say is that science fiction is really good at thinking strongly about the consequences of something. If this is true, what follows? What follows? And not just the most obvious thing. What is the? What are the next three things that happen after that? You know, Isaac Asimov says, you know, he had a story about um, if somebody in the 1800s is writing about automobiles, the new automobile. You know, you could write an adventure story about using an automobile to to save somebody. But a real science fiction writer extrapolates from the, this new horseless carriage to traffic jams. They figure out the consequences of some new technology. And there's just science fiction and fantasy are really good at playing out those what ifs. And sometimes it's just the matter of by having a, a metaphor that you can make real can make it more emotional. Having a mom who can tell whether you're telling the truth, actually tell that. I mean, all moms seem to have that superpower, but there's something lovely about making it um, true
1: on the page. What are you working on now? What's your next project?
0: Yeah, I'm working on, there's this young adult uh, series um, that I'm going back to. Uh, I just finished book two, starting book three, um, the Harrison Squared series, which I call kind of Cthulhu for kids. If, there's, if your listeners um, know anything about Lovecraft, it's it's um it's got monsters and a, a kind of horror based Hogwarts. Um, there's a terrible school in there. Uh, and just it's just one of the most fun things I've I've gotten to write. So I'm finishing up that series and then working on um, the next adult book, which doesn't have anything to do with Spoonbenders, but uh, is at such early stages that I'm not talking about it yet.
1: Before I close, is there anything else you, you maybe wanted to talk about?
0: No, I think that's it. I just really appreciate that people are, um, you know, this book is a con- is a confusing little beast in that Knopf you know, tried to sell it as uh, well. They marketed to some people as mainstream because as a family story, and to science fiction folks as a science fiction story. So I'm just really appreciative of those readers who will you know uh, cross the road to pick up uh, a strange hybrid book like that so thanks for thanks for featuring it on your podcast I really appreciate it
1: well thank you so much for coming on the show I I appreciate it too I've been talking to Daryl Gregory about his novel Spoonbenders and the paperback edition just came out so now's the perfect time to snap it up For more interviews, subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction on your favorite podcasting app or visit newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please consider leaving a review if you like what you've heard. I'm Rob Wolf, and I'm grateful you took the time to listen.